to go ahead and continue to advance a, a bill that is clearly unconstitutional, violates civil rights law, uh, just really in order to demonize children who just want to play sports in their schools um, to solve a problem that, that doesn't exist anywhere in the state of Indiana. Trans student athletes win in federal court in Indiana as a judge puts a temporary injunction on a trans student athlete ban in that state. RFU previously had a transgender policy um, in terms of playing rugby and that still had a lot left to be desired. However, at least they were inviting trans players and sticking with World Rugby's guidelines on diversity and inclusion, that actually rugby is a place for all. But actually now they've, they've gone back on that completely and they're saying that women players who are trans, they, cannot, they are not welcome in women's rugby and I absolutely oppose that. But the Rugby Football Union in England is set to vote Friday on continuing a slate of restrictions and bans against trans women in their sport. Hello again, everybody. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sports, transness, sci-fi, gaming, all things nerd and geek, and a lot of other stuff. And we have some breaking news to start the show this week. A federal judge in southern Indiana has ordered that the Indianapolis Public Schools must allow a 10-year-old girl at the heart of a current legal challenge against the state ban targeting transgender student-athletes to rejoin her softball team. U.S. District Judge James Magnus Stinson issued the preliminary injunction Tuesday in response to a lawsuit against IPS that was filed by the girl in federal court in May after the Indiana law was passed and signed the law took effect on July the 1st. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, the Rugby Football Union in England is set to vote on a measure that would ban transgender women from participation. A statement from the RFU on Monday said, quote, The case-by-case -case assessment is not without difficulties and can result in players not being permitted to participate. That is the current policy. Further quote from their statement, in light of the research findings and work of World Rugby and UK Sports Councils, and given the difficulties in identifying a credible test to assess physiological variables, it is recommended that this is no longer a viable option at this time and does not necessarily ensure inclusion. Therefore, the RFU Council will vote on a recommendation for a policy change for contact rugby to only permit players in the female category whose sex recorded at birth was female. Now, the RFU said that they have taken World Rugby and UK Sport Council guidance, which has largely, largely included voices such as Fair Play for Women, who were one of the headline groups at last month's ICONS conference, or as we like to call it, Transphobapalooza in Las Vegas back in June. Just two weeks ago on this podcast, Verity Smith, who's a wheelchair rugby player for the Leeds Rhinos, the first place top of the table Leeds Rhinos, by the way, and Mermaid UK's director for inclusion in sports, told us all about why you're seeing what you're seeing. It's just absolutely crazy out there. You're seeing gender criticals talking to MPs. We saw um, Nadine Doris on Twitter a couple of years ago, got given a... Uh, what was it, um, adult human female jumper, um, really proudly showing it. So when our own MPs are trying to force 
uh, sports organisations to follow these bans this, in the hands with the gender criticals in regards to the getting this information. And the, the, to show something like that as a jumper you've been given from a gender critical and put that on Twitter is not great when you're our sports minister. So we need to make sure that we're, we can be as loud as them and they start listening to us. They're not listening to us because we're a trans charity or we're involved in it. But it's our lives. It's not their lives. In response, a number of clubs have spoken out, calling for the RFU not to join FINA, World Governing Body for Swimming, the UCI, the World Governing Body for Cycling, and British Triathlon in bans and further restrictions against trans women playing their sports. One of those voices is Sasha Atchison. Now, she's the current head coach of the Bristol Bisons. She's also a former England international, and she called out what's behind these bans. In the last two years, there have been four women who have applied, because you have to apply, to, be, to play in the Women's League as a trans woman. There have been four women. There have been 35 trans men that have applied to play in the Men's League. There have been zero injuries since this is, all this data was collected. Absolutely none. So my question is, where has this new policy come from? Where has it come from to say that actually now all of a sudden it's dangerous? Is it because actually politically there is so much transphobic behaviours going on around this country and actually England rugby just want to jump on that bandwagon because there is no statistical facts to back that up? None whatsoever, because actually the matter of the fact is there is already that weight difference. There is already that height difference. There is already that strength dif difference. And actually, it's an insult to women. It's an insult to women that these people think that we need saving. We don't need saving. We don't need saving at all. We just want to play rugby, good competitive rugby. If you want to know more of what Coach Atchison and many others had to say, it'll be in the liner notes on Twitter. The vote is scheduled for Friday. And that morning at Twickenham Stadium in London, the home of England Rugby and the headquarters of the RFU, there will be a protest planned for 9.30 a.m. local time. One of the people who has stated that they will be there is Verity Smith. A lot of others will be there. If you're in the London area and if you, London area, be, and you care about rugby and you care about inclusion in sport, be there. Also in the liner notes this week, Alice Soper, friend of the podcast, New Zealand rug professional rugby player and television pundit had a great column on The Guardian on the real issues in women's sports. And guess what? This ain't it. Read the column. It's in the liner notes. In the news and notes this week, Alex Rimmer had a story on the latest Pride Night Jersey drama. This time it's in Australia. As seven members of the Manly Warringah Sea Eagles of the Australian National Rugby League decided that they wouldn't wear a jersey adorned in subtle rainbow colors for an upcoming Pride Night. Now, the seven ruggers who won't wear the Sea Eagles inclusion uniform, again, if you see the pictures of the uniform, we're putting them in the liner notes, they're rather subtle. They didn't publicly comment on the decision not to wear them, but there are sources close to them who said it was for faith reasons. Now, the club... On Tuesday, the head of, president of the club and other officials apologized, saying they didn't clear this fully with the players before they decided to do it. As one of the team principals said, quote, our intent was to be caring towards all the diverse groups who face inclusion issues daily. Sadly, this poor management 
has caused significant confusion, discomfort, and pain for many people, in particular those groups whose human rights we in fact are attempting to support. Now, here's my view on that. Because a lot of people feel that it was the same thing with the Tampa Bay Rays controversy about this a couple months ago, that, you know, you got to clear it to the players. And I understand that. But at the same time, I hope the same people who have all the sympathy for what's a faith issue and so on also have that same level of empathy for a player who perhaps is anti-war or doesn't feel that betting parlors and beer are suitable sponsors. And I find it interesting if people are going to try and take the faith angle on this, given that, you know, a betting parlor is a key sponsor of the team and that certain alcoholic beverages are also some key sponsors, you know, especially the alcohol part. You know, my my late grandmother, who is a very much foot-washing Christian in her own right, had this song that went, you won't be welcome in heaven with a bottle in your hand. The Lord ain't got no liquor store in the promised land. Hashtag just saying. So I'm not sure about the faith angle in all this when you've got that. I'm just saying. Also, secondly, oh, the team is actually called the Manly Warringus Sea Eagles. Now, where have we heard that name before? Oh, yeah, it was during the Australian general election back in May. You know, voters in Warringah decided that, you know, there was a candidate of a prominent party who was running on a lot of anti-LGBTQ bias, and they decided that we're not sending you to Canberra. You know, anti-LGBTQ bias isn't a good way to get votes. And I hope that fans remember that as in regards to these seven as well. And there was a voice who came out on Tuesday who had something important to say. And they come from a rather learned place. Ian Roberts, who as a player at Manly back in 1995, became the first active rugby league player to come out loud and proud as a gay man. Now, Roberts didn't castigate these players for their decision. If anything, he said this wasn't so much a moment for consternation, but a moment for confrontation by conversation. Here's what he had to say. I suppose the hardest thing for me when, when there's been so much pushback, and this is very personal to me as an older gay person, because, you know, I've lost friends to suicide and, and the consequences of what homophobia transphobia, all the phobias can do to people. You know, I, I, I just wish I could sit around that table with those players and explain to them that, you know, unfortunately there are kids out in the suburbs, out in the regions today, who might have, been, might have heard many stories in the last month, but I can promise you they heard this story. You know, and I don't want to start, I don't want to start um, quoting all those terrible statistics that we know about the LGBTQ plus community with self-harm and those types of things. But they are the types of consequences that come when there's pushback with stuff like this. When there's discrimination, and this is what prejudice and discrimination do. Um, you know, sport's always been political. You know, sport's always been, you know, always been political. I mean, I, made, I haven't prepared any speech, but I made some points. You know, you've got Peter Norman, Nicky Winmar, uh, Don Bradman, um, Kathy Freeman, sport has always been political. Sport's part of society, and society is political. You know, so this, this conversation needs to be had. Um, yeah, so I just, you know, I just really wanted to say that while I was disappointed, I'm, 
I can almost see this as a positive because this is a starting point again for the NRL you know, and to have this conversation about what Pride Rounds are all about and, and the essence of what a Pride Round is. You know, we had the Indigenous Round, we had Women's Rounds. You know, that these are all things to be embraced and be celebrated. Pride Round is just that as well. Now, that was a little snippet of about an 18-minute press conference. We're going to have the entire press conference from Nine Network News Australia in the liner notes. You want to check out a lot of what Roberts had to say. And also, when you get a chance, we're also going to put some other things in the liner notes about Roberts because this is a person you should know. Elsewhere in news and notes, the fake controversy surrounding the NCAA Women of the Year Award can finally end because the Ivy League selected as its conference's nominee Columbia fencer Sylvie Binder. Now, Binder has the goods for this, has the GPA, does a lot of stuff around campus, third at NCAAs this year, past national champion. Congratulations, Ms. Binder. But notice who's making a headline about this for all the wrong reasons. The usual anti-trans bunch because of who didn't get selected. Graduated University of Pennsylvania swimmer Leah Thomas. Now, there's four fundamental truths that you have to know about this. Number one, they should leave Leah Thomas alone, but they're not. Because as long as there's a chance to scare some people into things that aren't true or a chance to win votes in this election year... You're going to have Leah, you're going to talk about Leah because you have to talk about Leah to scare people. Fundamental truth number two, Bryn Tannehill is right again because she saw this coming. The author, former Navy pilot, and just transgender Titan told you about this. And in a Twitter thread this week, she also tells you where this all leads. And we got a link to that Twitter thread in the liner notes. If you haven't read this thread, you should. And if you haven't read her book, American Fascism, you should. Third fundamental truth, how little regard that all these transphobes actually have for women's sports. Again, look who look at what they're ignoring over transphobia. It's the same old thing. It's the same old, same old. Alex Soper's column talks about this. We talk about it ad nauseum infinitum. How little regard they have for for women's sports and they really don't care about women's sports because if they really did, they'd talk about the real issues. And at the very least, they'd be talking up these athletes that are moving forward in this instead of just taking another shot at Leah. And the fourth and to me most important fundamental truth. You cannot say the name Leah Thomas without also saying the words national champion. I'm just saying. On the good foot this week, congratulations to Truck United FC. They took home a cup over the weekend, the Truck Cup for charity teams. They defeated Stonewall FC 7-6 in a wild game. And a quick note to my transporter room family in Seattle. Now, on May 18th, we had the brain trust of the Puget Sound Pronouns softball team, Brittany Miller and Jerrica Moore, beamed up to the transporter room. And they had a big ambition for this season beyond the win-loss column. We're trying to find a way to organize a youth skills clinic. And what we'd like to do is basically set up stations with players and coaches from our league being like, 
okay, this is where you feel the grounder. This is how you throw this is how you throw a ball. Um, this is the hitting station. This is you know the outfield where you're gonna track fly balls um, and show kids that we belong in sports. That LGBTQIA plus people belong in sports as much as anyone else. That we can play just as well as anybody else. And uh, any of those kids there that might be, you know, maybe they, maybe their parents are awesome and they're already out and proud and maybe they're not. And they're, you know, looking to see an example of potential outcomes for them. And then they'll see someone like myself or Jerica or our coach, Sarah, laughing, smiling, having a good time, being good at these sports and think like, okay, maybe maybe as bad as things sound on the news, maybe happy and thriving queer adult is a potential outcome for me. Well, guess what? They're going to have it. The Youth Softball Skills Clinic is a go. It's scheduled for Saturday, August 27th, noon to 4 at North SeaTac Park. Ages 9 to 14. a participant. They'll provide the shirts, the water, the snacks. There are sponsorships available. If you want to know more, email Brittany at PugetSoundPronouns.org to sign your kid up. Now, if you didn't get that, don't worry. We're going to have it in the liner notes. And I'll tell you, if you're in the Seattle Metro, if you're in Vancouver, if you're in Puyallup, if you're in the Tri-Cities, it doesn't matter. If you're in Eugene or if you're in Portland, drive up. Drive across the state, bring your kid there. It's going to be a great time, and it's going to help a great cause because proceeds are going to a cause near and dear to my heart, Trans Lifeline. So it'll be a great opportunity, a great afternoon to learn some skills, and also you're going to be learning from a pretty good player in Brittany Miller. If you don't believe me, just ask her. I'm just saying. And that's the red alert klaxon, which means we're going to take a break, Give love to the sponsors. But when we come back, there is a trans woman who plays soccer down in Austin, Texas, who is seeking to do something pretty great. Not only is she a player, she could end up being an owner and help a franchise rise up as a phoenix from the ashes of a scandal. Very interesting story. We'll have it when we come back. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm your host, Carly Chardonnay Webb. And one thing you know about me is that when it comes to matters of labor relations in sports, I tend to always side with the athletes against the owners, especially certain skinflint owners. You know, the you know, the Charles Comiskey, Charlie Finley variety, you know, those type of owners, or more re- or more recent vintage the Jerry Jones, Daniel Snyder type owners, the owners that are really, that are really, really cheap and really don't know what they're doing. Or in some cases could be really, really well doing things that are underhanded to the athletes under their employ. We're right. We ran into that in United Women's Soccer recently in the matter of 
the franchise in Austin, Texas, FC Austin Elite. Now, FC Austin Elite this this season was at 6-0-1. They were fifth out of 49 teams in their top division. They had a head coach that was getting a lot of great things done. They had a team that looked like an odds-on favorite to win a national championship. And they had an owner who basically did a lot of dirty deals, including not playing the players and firing the head coach when they're in first. Now, how does that work? It doesn't. The the players complained. The league got involved. And it led to this team not being allowed to play out the season even as they were on their way to a potential national championship and a move up the always confusing U.S. soccer pyramid, especially for women. Now, one of the players in that who is try who's looking to make a change is a woman in the a woman who is an excellent striker and is also a financial analyst named Bethany Kurtmus. Like I said, they were a player who basically four years ago they were working at an investment bank, and then they took a flyer on a dream to play a little bit of soccer one more time. They took a tryout for a team in the NWSL and their reserve team. They didn't make the team, but they did get noticed, which led to a stint, which led to them coming to Austin, which also led to a stint in Spain. And now it's led them to, in a sense, take a Texas bull by the horns and turn what was a scandal into an opportunity. And Bethany Kirkmas is here in our forum to talk about just that. Oh, by the way, uh, a note to all the gender criticals out there. Yes, she plays. And yes, she's trans. And yes, she could be an owner. But enough about me talking about her. Let's beam her up. Bethany Kirkmas, we're beaming you up. Welcome to the Transporter Room. Energize. All right. Thank you so much, Carly. Uh, well, very much appreciate the kind words <laughs> you invited me on the show. Well, it's great to have you here. And we're going to get into like a lot of the story because it's a fascinating story. But before we do, I want to get two quick picks of you out of the gate here because mm-hmm. we've got two major events in international soccer right now. One's going on right now, which is Euro 2022. We're down to the semifinals. Who you got? Uh, I think I will have to take England as the home favorites. And they have had a remarkable tournament so far. And I think they'll finish it off. And then secondly, you know, in Qatar in October, you've got the World Cup. You, you've got the last 32-team World Cup before it expands to 48. Who you got? Uh, I am always a huge fan of France. and But being that they won it the last time, I find the repeat probably hard to, uh, hard to happen. Uh, it would be pretty neat to see England make it and, and wrap it up this year. Uh, but uh, I, I'm open. I'll probably cheer for, Par- uh, for France the most. And but ultimately, just want to see a lot of great competition and and some high intensity and exciting games. Quick response: United States. How far do they go? Uh, I do think they'll make it out of the group stage. Um, I don't think they'll pass quarterfinals. 
Now, getting into this story, because the more I read about it, the weirder it gets. Now, picture this. You're on a team that's playing well, is unbeaten, only one tie, the tie, the only blemish, really, and you're fifth place out of 49 teams in UWS. You you have a shot at a national championship. The team has has a shot. You're playing well. The team's playing well. You've got a coach which has really ratcheted up the competitive aspect. This team is fire is beginning to come together. The cup is in sight, and then the bottom falls out. How did you get here? It was a series of unfortunate events that just you know, un, uh, revealed themselves over a period of about a week. Uh, but it was issues stemming back uh, multiple years, sadly. Um, you know, I had, I had been playing with Elite since 2019. And we've always had good talent in there, but we've never really had a consistent head coach. And that came to the majority of practices or games. And as such, we were mediocre. And we finished average. I think last year we finished five out of eight teams in the conference. And this year we have a whole new coach. We went from two or three practices a week to four morning practices a week, uh, two other evening practices, uh, as well as an optional, if you didn't get time over the weekend playing in the game, uh, that the coach would do individual trainings outside of that. And uh, it just was remarkable. And we had uh, some girls fly in from uh, Florida, Georgia, uh, I think Iowa, uh, Washington, California. So we had we had a, a packed team this year, uh, but with a coach to take us to the next level. And that's exactly where we were going. And uh, our coach was terminated. The head coach, Christian Leza, for, for the listeners out there and for the viewers out there, this was a person who last year was coaching at Santos. Yes, that Santos. And they ditched her have, after having a winning record. Comes to Austin. Six wins, no defeats. Team Turns a team that was, you said, a five, from going from number fifth just in their, com, in, their, in their regional conference to number five in an entire nation. And as players, we couldn't really understand what happened. So we asked the... Uh, the GM questions about it. Uh, it was a GM who's 100% owner. Uh, There's a player council. They were never talked about with any potential issues with the coach uh, or about the potential firing. We also have a board of advisors. Uh, they also were not aware that there were any issues with the coach or had any idea that the coach was going to be terminated. And uh, it just happened. So, you know, we've got Oh, at 25, 30 of us girls asking questions and saying, like, this is our coach. We want her here. Uh, we initially started saying, let's just plan um, plan some sort of a boycott. Let's pretend like we're going to play tomorrow, show up. And then 30 minutes before, let's just all say, hey, we're not going to play without our coach. Uh, I found out, unfortunately, in some side conversations that the GM was already reaching out to people that hadn't been on the team all summer. They maybe had played in the city league uh, earlier this year or, or years prior. And that whether or not we were going to play, he was going to find at least, you know, X number of people to take the field. 
And if if we did something like tape over our jersey, we would have just been asked to leave. And so then we had to change our plan a little bit. And we said, all right, well, let's let's just sit out and let's sit out until this is done with. And so there's a group of 25 of us girls that opted to sit out for the remainder of the season uh, or until, you know, this hit some sort of resolution. Um, I think about five, I think it was five girls ended up playing. I just, I spoke to them all individually. They didn't believe that there was not injustice. They still did, but knew that action was needed off the field. And they, you know, opted to play for other personal reasons as well. And so we sit out and, you know, a bunch of people, I have no clue who they were, joined the other five girls. Uh, they ended up tying that game. And uh, so technically we still have a shot to go to the playoffs. Us players then said, hey, let's put together a list of resolutions of, you know, what do we want to see happen here in order for this to become right? And what happened, it wasn't just the fact that the coach got fired. But then we found out that there were other much deeper issues as well. And the number of players on the team that were told that they were going to get uh, housing, food, and then some form of compensation. Uh, Yes, housing and food was provided uh, to a certain extent for out-of-town players, but the compensation was not. And then not only that people were promised compensation, but people would specifically ask, Will this be in writing? Will there be written contracts and told, yes, we're going to do a big signing day, you know, but you have to get to Austin and you have to be there. Well, there was never a signing day. Uh, Nobody ever got contracts. And I think the best word of how it just makes me feel is like financial abuse, where you're telling these players uh, they're leaving their current teams, they're leaving their current jobs. Uh, Some of them, you know, did coaching positions where they were on these promises and, and then they're not being delivered. Uh, We also found out that the coach was not being paid uh, properly and timely. Uh, She was told she was fired because uh, he didn't hire a coach to win games. He hired a coach to build a program and said that she didn't get sponsors, but she actually did get sponsors. And uh, this was an interesting conversation. I asked in front of the whole team, I said, well, hey, don't you think going to nationals or winning a national championship would give us the ability to attract even more sponsors or investors? And his response was, no. At this level, I've been in the game long enough to know that it wouldn't attract any new uh, sponsors or investors. And that it would only help attract someone like Umbro and Adidas, and we're already partnered with them. I thought that was kind of odd. Uh, you know, I don't think I've probably ever heard a GM say that there would be no intangible benefits or tangible benefits of winning a championship. Now, what is the next step? Because oh. there are a lot of op- there were there were a few options. Uh, obviously, there was the option to buy the team, but. You did the cost-benefit analysis on that and found out, no, that's not going to happen because there was debt. I mean, it was reportedly there was debts as far as the team still had outstanding debt. Yeah. So now you're trying to, re, in a sense, build something new and build it better. What would it look like? What are some of the plans going forward? 
yeah, I mean, so the the plans initially started with saying, "Hey, well, let's let's buy out the team because we technically are kicked out of the league because the league had a contract with the elite LLC, and so there was no way to keep the players playing and to get rid of the GM." So we're thinking, okay, if we can take over the LLC, we can finish our season. We can go to regional finals uh, and we can go to nationals. Super crazy. Uh, We ended up not being able to do that because of what you said. I found out that there's actually money is owed to the league still. So literally, even if we got the team for free, we would would be in debt. And we already knew we would be rebranding anyway. So... That just that did not sound appealing at all. Um, is like starting that way, and so we said, "All right, I guess it's time to start a new team." And there ended up not being a regional final match. Uh, San Antonio, who finished second in our conference, was going to go to Atlanta, but Atlanta couldn't play because of roster issues, and so San Antonio ended up going to nationals, and they bypassed regionals. And we're just at nationals last weekend. So it's uh, super unfortunate because that would have been us just if we could have taken the pitch again. Um, but we couldn't. So we said, all right, I guess it's time to start a new team. And, you know, the 25 of us that opted to not play uh, along with Coach Lessa, we still have a whole group together and we're continuously sharing ideas about what we're trying to do. We've had. Uh, ideas from whether we want this to be a player-owned team to finding uh, a couple investors or possibly I've had a lot of suggestions about doing a community-owned team. I love the idea of community-owned teams and I've been reading about the Minnesota Aurora FC and that story is just fabulous. What they've done with the community support, the fundraising that they had to, to build that team and program and then they had a killer season in their first year and made it to the uh, national finals. It was last last weekend or the weekend before. It was this past weekend. It was this past weekend and it was a and overtime an overtime loss wow. in that one. Wow. But still 2-1 but but still a great season and in a sense for you though what would it mean what would it mean for you to to see it to come out next year and not only be a player but also be an perhaps even be an owner uh, it, you know it would be it would be pretty neat i haven't actually thought that much about thinking of myself as an owner uh there's a small group of five of us along with coach lessa five players and coach lessa and we're the ones that are primarily spearheading the efforts of starting this new team, uh, going through the fun process of choosing a name uh, and all that good stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, at this point, it seems that there would possibly be six owners, but that's obviously can change at any point. We have a number of conversations in the next couple of weeks with uh, either potential sponsors or potential investors. It'd be, I mean, I think it'd be amazing to have a player-owned team, not just like, I'm not saying it for myself to be a player, but just to give players more control, right? And more ownership. 
and have more influence over something like this. Uh, I do think longer term, the community owned option is fabulous. But at this point, we just, we need to separate ourselves from the prior team, the prior branding. Uh, we, we think we have a new name, but we're just waiting uh, to wrap up some legal counsel and some paperwork before we start sharing that type of information. No. Uh, so no, no sneak peeks on that. Um, but it, it's been a fun process just starting to plan it. And the support we have gotten from the community has been remarkable. Our first goal is, frankly, just to get re-registered back into the league because we technically aren't even in the league anymore, the UWS. So we said, all right, let's just let's just go a step at a time. So step one, let's get back in the league. Step two, let's have a killer 2023 campaign and put together one of the best seasons that we've done. And then I think at that point, we'll maybe be able to look more at the community ownership uh, aspects uh, and, and really expand beyond that. And yeah, you know, we'd love to see our team eventually make it to a true pro league, even if it's a D3 pro league. Um, I do believe since playing in Spain that we need more of that in the U.S. That, you know, we need a D1 pro, we need a D2 pro. Uh, I mean, D3 Pro would be fabulous, but uh, we certainly need more than just one league. And it'd be great that in a couple of years for us to have helped start a true D3 Pro team. Uh, that's, you know, bigger visions, bigger dreams and goals. I like to set them and, and you know, hopefully we can hit them. Now, with that in mind, seeing that how, you know, the community is rallied around the players in this one kind of rallying around the possibility of something new and something better and getting past the scandal. But at the same time, what has it been like for you on a personal level to deal with this off-field drama and deal with the drama along with your teammates? And at the same time, since you do live in Austin, Texas, just down the street, your state legislature is, say, legislature is saying, Bethany Kurtmus, since you're trans, you're not a citizen of Texas. Uh, yeah. Um, personally, it has been a bit difficult living in in Austin with the state laws that have passed over the last couple of years, uh, not just for transgender individuals, but there's a, a number across the board. That it, That is really hard. Um, like, do we know if we're going to be able to live in this state long term? I just I genuinely don't know at the moment. But I do know that this is where we live. And I also know that whether or not trans kids are allowed to get any support uh, medically, that they still need they still need to see people out there. They still need to see uh, people that can be an inspiration and be a role model. And when I started training to play semi-pro and pro soccer, uh, five years ago now. I mean, I've been playing for 30 years since I was four. But when I really started training to go to the next level, I did it for two reasons. One reason was to push myself to be the best athlete I could be. And the second reason was to be out there as a trans person. And I like I did so much research about uh, different <laughs> different rules and regulations for trans athletes 
in soccer in the U.S. I reached out to clubs, to the leagues, to the governing bodies. I reached out to FIFA. And frankly, FIFA was like the only one that actually got back to me with uh, any helpful information. And I've, I've found some other stuff in the bylaws and operating agreement about inclusivity from uh, the United States Soccer Federation, which I think was fantastic. Um, but just all of it, yeah, I, whether or not there's a transgender uh, kid out there in Austin that's getting the health care that they need, they're still transgender, right? And that's still how they identify and trying to hide us and not be visible at all. I, I just I don't agree with that. So I'm just going to keep being me uh, and take the opportunities I can. And hopefully it can pave the way for uh, for people down the road. Now, and, and not even just transgender people, but, um, you know, I'm in an LGBTQ uh, relationship as well. And so that in terms of inclusivity, uh, in an interracial uh, marriage as well, in terms of inclusivity. All of these are important. And this is what all the players on the team care about too. Like this is, you know, these are the values we care about and what we want. And as we form a new team, that's absolutely going to be the standard. And if you aren't with that, that then this isn't the right team for you. So in other words, when... In other words, when whatever whatever the next Austin FC that you put together has a pride night, no one's going to be refusing to wear a rainbow jersey. Just making sure we get that and make yeah. sure we get that together. Now, one thing about you is Wisconsin kid, born born and raised Wisconsin, born and raised Wisconsin kid. Even all the way going to the University of Wisconsin, that beautiful red and white go Badgers on Wisconsin. As a fellow Big Ten alum, you know what? Won't hold that against you. Oh, I love all the Big Ten. So well, they, hugs, hugs everywhere. Well, hugs. Well, well, purple and white love from Evanston from my end. But you were you you got out of school. You went into finance. You went into finance. You worked at you worked at one of the biggest banks in the world. Then a couple things happened. I would say around 20, you said around five, six years ago, you realized two things. One, I want to give this soccer thing one more serious shot. And the other one, it's time to move. It's time to make my own personal move forward. How did you manage to do both? Yeah, um, it's just, it's just life. So just going with, uh, going with some of the cards. Uh, you know, and everyone has a different story too. So when I when I first learned and understood that I was transgender, to me, I didn't have the words for it. Like I I know since I was probably at least five, I can think about things that I thought growing up. And I just thought I was weird. And it wasn't until I was what, 28 years old, watching uh, a YouTube video of a transgender person that was talking about their experience and and it was so much like mine. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's this is what that is. Like, wow, I've you know, just going from feeling that you're weird and you can't talk to people about stuff for your whole life 
like that you have these secrets that you can't say out loud. Um, you know, I couldn't just go all to my guy friends and be like, Hey, don't you like wish that your body was more like, don't you wish that you had a woman's body instead ever? Oh no. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Me either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah. And especially, I mean, um, I have some pretty conservative, uh, parents, so even if I had the words for it, it probably wouldn't have been something I would have discussed in the household and I would have had to find my own, uh, my own avenues for it. Um, and, and frankly, I just feel terrible for all the kids out there that, that live at home and they have parents and my God, my parents are trying to, to control what I do with my life and I don't live at home. Right. I'm 34. I'm a big girl. I can take care of myself. I've done some hard things in life. Uh, I'll, I'll figure it out. But what about the kids that are, you know, eight or even five or 13, right? And now they're starting puberty and they're becoming even more uh, of someone that they don't identify with. And, and oh gosh, that, that whole stuff, that's a whole extra topic that, um, but that just, that's uh, how I would have felt in Wisconsin if I even had the words for it, um, transgender, but it wasn't until 28. And then, I mean, it, it was so clear to me when I, when I heard those words and understood it, I had zero doubt in my mind that I would, uh, zero doubt about transitioning. Like I knew that I would. And I had actually, I, I was married for a couple of years and I had just gotten divorced. And that's when I had discovered this YouTube video. It was like two weeks after um, I had separated from my ex. And so I didn't want to start hormone therapy immediately because I literally just had a crazy, you know, emotional roller coaster. But I still knew like in my heart, it's like, no, this is, this is what I've been thinking my whole life though. So this isn't a brand new thought that just came up when I was 28. Um, it's like, now I just understand. And so I waited six months before I started hormone therapy. And then I've been on that for about five and a half years now. And that's part of the stuff too, with all the transgender players in sports. I like, I reached out to all those teams and leagues and governing bodies because I was trying to figure out, like, what do I have to do? Exactly. What are the rules like, here? Can, can I play? Uh, am I eligible? I wonder, what's your thoughts on that? Now, they're revamping everything. Um, yeah. As we're speaking right now, it look it, you have swimming, cycling, rugby, possibility that triathlon will join the line, one of the most influential bodies for for rugby in the world, the rugby football union in England is now putting up a ban, a total ban on trans on on participation by trans women. What's your thoughts on that based on what you're talking about here, which is trying to figure out how do I play, how do I work into it, and how do I play as myself? Yeah. Um God, my thoughts are I wish that people would get um one, I just wish people would get more educated. Uh, I would wish that the people making the rules actually know transgender people 
and talk to them about their experience. And, you know, I get it. There might be a transgender athlete that wins an NCAA champion. But for that one trans athlete, how many not champion trans athletes are there, right? I mean, it, it's not like every transgender person is automatically the best and is going to win every sport. But instead, there, there are other variables at play. And what I found out when I was researching uh, the different rules in soccer, the United States Soccer Federation, they have an uh, equal opportunity clause. And it basically says for any amateur teams, you can play under the gender which you identify. And I haven't looked at their bylaws um, in probably two or three years. Uh, just I, ha I haven't need needed to personally, so I'm not sure if that's changed. And then it said for professional uh, leagues, we defer to FIFA's rules. And I had actually contacted FIFA. Uh, they got back to me quite timely. It was great. They said, hey, we take this very seriously. And then they sent some information. And basically it was, uh, my understanding of it was someone that had an interest in me, like a coach of a team I would be going to, uh, a GM of it could say, hey, we'd like to have a, a, a medical opinion on this. And then I would just have a panel of doctors and, you know, run labs and whatnot. So at the professional level, do I think that makes sense to have requirements based on hormone levels? 100%. Because I'm on hormone therapy. I know what my capabilities were before I started hormones. And I know what my capabilities are after starting hormones. And, you know, I could do like 12 to 15 pull-ups in one set. And I, within a year of hormones, I have never been able to do five again. It's usually like three or four all top out. And so it's just stuff like that. I mean, uh, speed has always been my thing, but I'm definitely, I mean, I'm not the slowest, you know, on the pitch. But I'm, I'm not the fastest on the pitch either. And looking at these types of things, though, there just sadly isn't enough transgender athletes out there to get good data. And that's one of the hardest parts in all of my research. I had only found the one other pro soccer player that was transgender. Um, and she was, um, I forget her name, but she's from American Samoa. And... So just like it's really hard to find guidance when there's so 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 few cases and people say, oh, you know, there should just be a separate transgender league. I'm like, frankly, there just aren't enough of, of us out there anyway to be. I think in all of semi-pro, I still only know like two transgender soccer players. So, Well, see, that's the thing in itself. There are those who are saying that they should be. Like for example, you shouldn't have never gotten the trial that you got because you got a you got a trial with the Chicago Red Stars and didn't make it, but did show well. Ended up getting the ended up getting your birth in Spain to play for um, CSF CFF Maritime mm -hmm. and did well, but of course COVID shortened. But as you were going through those experiences and and the experiences now. 
what have the have the questions come up? Have the debates come up, say in the dressing room or among the team? Mm, no, I mean that's that's the surprising thing about it because when I went to the Chicago Red Stars tryout, I was there mainly to try out for the reserve team, but it like it's a combined tryout. So um, the assistant coach talked to me afterwards and said that when I had met uh, the head coach the prior summer that, and asked him about transgender athletes, it sounded like they had a meeting that week just to talk about it. And the assistant coach said, you know, frankly, the, the girls don't care. You know, it just, it is, it is what it is. And that was, I mean, that was great. He didn't need to say that to me. He specifically came up to me as, as we were done with the, with day two of tryouts. Um, Cause I didn't even know that he heard that conversation the prior summer. I was talking to the head coach and, and I guess he was right there. And so just stuff like that in Spain. Yeah. No issues at all. Um, and then, you know, even in Austin, and the league or the city league, uh, I've not heard of, of it, right? Are there people I've played against that probably are like, oh, I saw that girl and she's trans, or they're probably like, he's trans and <laughs> totally misgender, which is terrible. But I don't I don't hear that stuff. I know it's out there. I just have been fortunate. I think there's a big difference too between amateur level sports and professional. And, you know, seeing some of these laws come into place that say, hey, you cannot play this sport unless if you started hormone therapy before puberty or like before the age of 13. And I think it's incredibly unfair and unjust because I now live in a state of Texas where it is literally illegal to get health care as a transgender child to do any sort of transition. So that's basically, there's now a rule that's saying, if you're from Texas, you're basically never allowed to play on the, on your true gender identities team. That's uh, just when laws are created like that, I get the idea. Okay. People want to protect people, but I mean, let's, let's think about things in general, like one, are, are people getting hurt? Two, at the amateur level, what what really is at stake? And I can tell you what, transgender people deal with a lot of other stuff. And, you know, it'd be nice to maybe get a win somewhere about, you know, something we can do in our life that aligns with our identity. You know, bathrooms come up. And when I started transitioning, I had incredibly short hair. My hair was one and a half inches long and my face was much more masculine. I was growing breast tissue within one to two months. So I didn't feel comfortable using a women's bathroom, even though I identify that way. Um, but I also didn't feel comfortable using the men's bathroom either because just imagine going to the men's bathroom when you have breasts like it's just incredibly unwelcoming and and really unsafe and i mean that's me thinking it. i can't imagine how terrified some other people are 
uh, being put in those situations. That uh, that's more like that's the scariest part of it. Uh, but in all my sports since what 2018, I played on all women's teams or co-ed, and any of the women's teams never there's never any issues when it comes to locker room and all that stuff. It's just just part of the team, you know, just like anybody else. Now switching gears for a little bit since coming down coming into the home stretch here, uh, one thing is on the field you take care of business off the field you really take care of business or have been uh they said you had worked you'd worked for a time after college you had worked in chicago later in austin bank of montreal doing a lot of like very high powered stuff in addition to all of a sudden switching gears getting back on the field doing well there too and now off the field you're one. Hey, you're looking to get in on this. Get in on the gr- you're get on the ground floor with the with some knowledge about this F, about the FNT F the NFTs because that's the that's that's the hot three letters right now. What is the biggest misconception people have about this sector? Uh, about NFTs. Yes. What's uh, the, the biggest, biggest misconception? Yeah, is that it's for laundering money and that it's all fake and scams. What's the real? What is the reality in regard to what this is? Because there's a lot of people out there with dollar signs in their eyes. Like, is this a blockchain bubble? Is this sustainable? What What's going on? Because I'll admit, I'm all thumbs when it comes to this. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think a number of us in the space had called a bubble a few months ago. And, and frankly, it was a bubble for every market, not just cryptocurrencies or NFTs, but also for real estate and stocks uh, and equities. Uh, but the reality is it's an emerging technology. And with every emerging technology, you always have early adopters and people that either get it or just like don't get it, but they want to, they just want to be along for the ride. And then over time, when people see that it really is legitimate or it is going to be around long-term and then you eventually have more mass adoption. And, you know, late 2017, we saw a huge cryptocurrency uh, boom and bubble burst. And now this time around in the latest, you know, bubble bursting, I think we're seeing much more mass adoption on cryptocurrencies, but not quite the mass adoption on NFTs. And the reality is it's an emerging technology because it allows us to do some of the things that we currently do, but in a decentralized format. So you don't have a centralized institution that's controlling it. It just is, it just is controlled, technically not controlled by the people because it just is an open forum for transactions. Um, or you have products, uh, blockchains like Ethereum, where you can actually store data on the blockchain and it can be there forever. And that's one of the first things, you know, when I first learned of cryptos five years ago, I knew Bitcoin was, you know, most valuable because of its ability to be treated just like a currency from a financial uh, transaction standpoint. But I had understood that Ethereum had the ability to store data on the blockchain. 
and data is huge and so valuable. So in my mind, I've actually personally always favored Ethereum knowing that industries will want to use it. We just aren't quite there uh, to that mass adoption. But we're now seeing, uh, you know, sports memorabilia move onto the blockchain, onto NFTs. We're seeing music uh, and albums and tickets for uh, concerts and events. Uh, and of course, art is transitioning from just a traditional artwork to digital art. And the beauty of the blockchain is that you can tell if something is authentic in literally seconds. And you can tell who owns it in seconds. And when it comes to things like traditional art, there's often a very difficult time determining if something truly is authentic and determining its provenance, which is the ownership history. So when we learned about NFTs and seeing art on the blockchain and realizing, wow, this like literally hundreds of year old, uh, this issue is now solved with the blockchain. But we're not naive enough to think that paintings or sculptures won't exist anymore. We just believe it's a new forum. It's a new medium uh, for expression. And, and that's the art side of it. I've mentioned a few other areas as well. So we're, we're pretty, um, we've been in the, the NFT space. It's also called uh, Web3. We've been in that for, gosh, uh, about 17 months now. And so we've seen our, our fair shares of, of rides to the tops and busts and rides to the tops, uh, top back again. And uh, just very fascinating, though, to, to be able to have that chance to say, hey, you know, I want to be an early adopter this time. And, you know, do I believe that more companies will use it? 100%. They will definitely use it. Uh, do I know when it will happen? Not at all. Could but be on, years, could be 10. But on the other side now, on one end, you're on the cutting edge. But on the other end, since now we're getting to the nerd, real nerd geek part of the show here, um, you're looking for some yester tech when it comes to your video gaming. <laughs> you're looking for an end Wait a minute, you're talking about all this cutting edge stuff for the future, and then you're like, all I really want to do is play some Zelda on N64. I mean, that game is just too good to not want to. Uh, I mean, we have some involvement with uh, certain gaming uh, projects that are on the blockchain, and we do definitely think that gaming on the blockchain will be a huge industry when it comes to like, play to earn. But there's just something, you know, fun and nostalgic about uh, Zelda on Nintendo 64. <laughs> and that, that would be my go-to. So if I ever happen to have any downtime and I wanted to decompress by playing a game, yeah, that would be the one. Okay, all the old school, all the old school gamer heads out there who are, who are part of Transporter Room Nation, because hey, we all game, even me. If you know somebody's got an N64 that's gathering some dust, she may have a proposition for you. <laughs> she may... You can slide into my DMs for that. Yeah. <laughs> but now, ask the question, though. With all these governing bodies, they're looking at all these regulations. FIFA's one of them. 
If the head of FIFA called you and said, Bethany, what do we do? What would you tell them? Uh, I would say, you know, one, can you share any data that you may have from doctors you've been talking to? Uh, I, I think my biggest fear on all of these organizations that are making the rules is that there's no trans person in the room or frankly, most of those people don't even know someone for them to have like a secondhand story or information. So the biggest fear is that they're making these decisions without having the true standpoint from us, the people that they're making the rule about and or any supporting medical data. And um, I think I saw one that was in the British Journal of Medicine about um, transgender people in the, in the British Army. And it said after one year that trans women, uh, any benefit that they had in terms of like sit-ups and push-ups was gone. And yes, they were still slightly faster. I think it went down from like 21% faster to 9% faster. But I think what people need to grasp is that in general, though, when you're on hormones, and, and frankly, I only want this, this idea to take place from a true professional level, because if you're playing amateur sports and you are not getting compensated, there is no reason that you should not play with the gender which you identify. And especially putting in requirements where literally it's impossible for people to meet those because of various local state laws. I think that's just an absolute shame. Um, and people can, you know, share experience about being on hormones and what does it do for you? So, you know, I, may I, like I said before, maybe a little bit faster than some people. Sure. Are there still people in the league that are way faster than me? My God. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. Could I be stronger than average? Probably. But are there people way stronger than me? Absolutely. You know, and I think that's um, sometimes the challenge is that they look at one specific example of one, one standout athlete and they make their rules around that. And they're not making their rules around all of us trans athletes as a whole, as, as a population of data. Um, but yeah, I, I really would love to see, I mean, I would have happily been donating my, you know, my body to research if I could, because I want there to be more data available out there for the effects of hormones. But I do believe that on the professional levels, there should be, um, uh, hormone, uh, level requirements. And testosterone is the biggest difference. And I mean, for me taking, taking estrogen, you, your muscle and fat composition changes completely. And literally your, your, your facial complexion even changes because of the physiological effects of it. Um, and the average male testosterone is, gosh, it's some crazy number. It's several hundred or like a thousand. And the average female is like, 20 to 60. It's just, it's night and day. So having some sort of threshold in there and, and then some sort of timeline 
I, I don't know if 12 months is the right timeline or if it's 24 months. Um, uh, you know, when it comes to like FIFA and we're talking about World Cup, maybe 24 months makes sense. But that that's hard. Uh, I would like to see more data on that. Um, I just know personally I was pretty impacted even just after 12 months uh, and having testosterone levels, frankly, below uh, average for women even. But yeah, so just in summary, I, I hope that the people making these laws are truly getting the voice of transgender athletes and transgender individuals to ensure that their side is heard as well. And there are considerations aside from the performance on the field, but this does also tie into bathroom issues. And what is also really scary is even at the high school level, if you do not allow a trans female to play on the team that she chooses and you make her play on the men's team, like how, how alienated is she going to feel? Because that's an incredibly uncomfortable situation if she has to go into the men's locker room and or she doesn't but then she's just alone you know and isolated and that's not what team that's not what team is about at all well i know one thing whatever the next itineration of fc austin will be that team will be about something and you're going to be a part of it and i look forward to see what it's going to look like from bethany kurtmas thank you for being on the transporter room this weekend you know, let come on, nation. Let's see if we can't get her her N64, all right? Somebody, somebody's got one gathering dust stepping up. Bethany, thank you for being on the transporter room this week. I appreciate it, Carly. Thanks for everything you do as well. Well, we're going to beam you back down to Austin. And thanks again to Bethany Curtis for being with us this week. And thanks to all of you for being a part of transporter. Porter Room Nation, week in, week out. And if there's something you want to see or someone you want to see on this podcast or something you want to say about what I'm doing here, leave a message on our Twitter, leave a message on the Facebook, and leave a message at our Instagram presence, Transporter Room 10 Forward. Remember, everything I do here at the Transporter Room, I do for all of you, the people who support us. That's the Transporter Room for this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. Live long and prosper. Steady as she goes. I'll catch you all next week.